Well, what's good, everybody? It is Thursday, July 5th, 2018, and this is episode 90 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. My name is Raphael Garcia, and I'm here with Schwan Humes, once again, to talk all things MMA. We have quite a bit to talk about for this week. Schwan, say hello to everybody. Let us know where to find us. Hey, guys. Uh, uh, you can always find us on YouTube, SoundCloud, and iTunes as of right now. Uh, we appreciate the support, and we're going to continue to give you the uh, world-class an- analysis and discussion of mixed martial arts and all combat sports associated with it. So, first and foremost, man, let's talk about it. How did you spend your Fourth uh, of July? Did you do anything special? I saw The Incredibles too. It wasn't bad. The rest of the time I spent putting together appliances for elderly people, so that was fun. <laughs> That does not sound like quite a vacation at all. No. no. I spend a lot of time helping people. That's like my hobby. That's what I spend the most time doing. Taking somebody somewhere, helping somebody. Can you watch this? Can you teach my kid how to play basketball? Can you tutor my kid on something? Can you help my grandma with something? That's, I'm that guy. So I'm always trying to make somebody's life a little bit easier if possible. Well, you're a much better man than me because I didn't get off my ass. I just <laughs> sat in the house. I didn't even go see any fireworks, man. I just, I just chilled out, relaxed, slept, uh, and that was about it, dude. Didn't do anything special at all. Gotta kind of catch. Say one thing: don't ever have kids, because th- those quiet times will be few and far between. Listen, I um, may or may not have looked up how to get a, a vasectomy on my um, spare time. So, listen, it's that serious. Hey, kids! I tell people kids are great, but. You want well-adjusted, well-rounded, successful children. You gotta, you gotta invest, man, and that's a financial and time investment. So, ain't no shortcuts to that. Ain't no shortcuts at all. I'd rather spend my money on alcohol and cheat women. I mean, that's yeah. just be real. <laughs> but let's go I ahead. Honesty. <laughs> you let's and John, jo- you and you and John Jones have something in common. Yeah, man. I mean, all I do is catch up with him when it comes to the blow, and we'll be good to go. Yeah. But wait, he's married though, isn't he? Uh, unfortunately, yeah. Okay, well that's a whole other that's a whole other show topic there. That's a whole other show topic. So let's go ahead and um jump into the show, man. We got quite a bit to talk about. Probably the biggest story of the week is Max Holloway out of UFC two twenty six. Uh he was pulled out yesterday, late last night, due to what was called concussion like symptoms and he was trying to push through and still do the fight. But he went to the hospital Wednesday night and was ruled out of the fight. There was a there's been some continuing news developing in, within this story since Wednesday. Supposedly the UFC tried to book first they tried to book Brian Ortega versus Jeremy Stevens, but Brian Ortega smartly turned that down and said he would not fight. So then the UFC attempted to book Jeremy Stevens and Frankie Edgar for a interim featherweight fight, interim featherweight title, which makes absolutely zero sense. And there's also conversations about Brian Ortega and Max Holloway being booked for UFC 227, which is just four weeks away. So it's interesting looking at the story from a 360 view because you have one man who's clearly suffering. Um, He didn't look good. I don't know if you saw the interview he had with... uh, on UFC tonight where Michael Bisping was basically like, dude, what's wrong with you? Because he was slurring his words. And I mean, he looked 
if he was driving a car, a, a police officer would have considered him being drunk. But um, he just did not sound well. So then if you take that into account and all these things that the UFC tried to do to kind of fix the situation, I'm doing that in, in air quotes. We got quite a bit to talk about here. But first, let's talk about Max. Man, what were your thoughts when you saw that Max Holloway was out and the reason I, that he was out? I, unlike a lot of people, I wasn't shocked at all, to be honest. If you recall, numerous times before this recent mishap, Max Holloway has said, I'm not going to stay at featherweight for very long. It's very hard for me to make this weight. I don't know how long I can stay at this weight class. He's talked about tough weight cuts. He's talked about how big he's getting. He's talking about how he wants to move up to light heavyweight, lightweight and get a title as well. He's constantly made references to this. But then what other people also forget is when remember when he was supposed to fight Khabib for the interim title? Yep. They stopped him from making the weight cut, and everybody said, now, in hindsight, before, everybody said, well, they're overreacting, they're, they don't care about his safety, the state commission is just being too cautious. Now, in hindsight, how does that cautiousness look? Because I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to put up any or medical professional say that the reason that they stopped the weight cut was ridiculous. I mean, you're it's easy as You're breaking up just so, a little bit. It's easy as fans to say, well, that was, that was ridiculous. He was going to make the weight. But they're medical professionals. They know more than we do. They're right there in front of him. And now when you look at what happened recently, how they're saying he has concussion symptoms, and I think it might be weird for concussion related. Now how does it look to all the people who question the medical professionals when they said they need to stop the weight cut? And even if in fact it is like a concussion, let's just say he's having a hard time making weight, which we all know he is. If you're drawing yourself out, and you're working at the pace he works at to develop his conditioning, and you spar with the high level of contact that you know he spars with because he's too comfortable with getting hit and firing right back, you don't develop that comfort without testing yourself and pushing yourself. If your body's dehydrated and you're cutting weight and you're having a hard cut, that makes you more susceptible to concussions when sparring or fighting. So these things go hand in hand. So I wasn't shocked by this at all. A lot of other people are like, I can't believe this. I'm like, the dude's had three separate weight cuts. He had to cut for Aldo. He had the cut for Nurmagomedov. He got cut off. And now he had this one. That's three in like less than a year's time. And one of them just came out the blue like with a week's notice. So you don't think that would have any sort of effect on his body or the next cut he has in in preparation for a fight? That's just ridiculous. I don't even see how people didn't see this coming. And what's crazy about this is, man, um, this is his third time pulling out of a fight in 2018. His third time. And... You really have to be concerned. I think um, I think it was Dave Doyle may have tweeted this earlier today, but we need to recognize that we may never see Max Holloway fight again. And for the UFC to even for this to even be a conversation point that they're looking at rebooking this fight in four weeks, man, they really uh, it. I will begin to question um, the. Uh, Professionalism, professionalism of the organization and overall concern because here it is a man who tried to do them a solid favor by taking a super dangerous fight against Khabib on short notice stepping in there and here it, it is that they are almost trying to rebook him within four weeks and it's almost like no we need to sit this guy down and figure out what's going on because he may exactly. never be the same he was way overweight he was way overweight with a week to make weight 
and you win a featherweight champion to risk his title and his unbeaten streak against one of the best lightweights in the world when you have two, three viable lightweights on the card. They had Pettis, they had Ally Quinta, and they had Paul Felder. How do you go to Max Holloway first? That doesn't even make any sense. That makes no sense whatsoever. So you go to a guy who's totally, who's out of shape, has not been training, and tell him to cut down to 155 in a week or two weeks. That that doesn't make any sense. And I mean, the fact that his camp, his camp went along with it, I mean, you work, you work with fighters. You Would you tell a guy to just make cut a weight in two weeks and then a couple months later have to actually make a lower weight for a fight for, to defend the title? I yeah, wouldn't I'm do not, that. I'm not a fan of that at all. Um, I'm not a fan of that at all. And Just one, just one more thing. I, I hate to interrupt you, but one thing. The way Max fights, and I've said this about other guys who are very high volume, high contact styles, those styles don't last very long. They just don't because you take a lot of contact. You work at a high pace. You're gr- you have to work at a high pace in training to get to that level of conditioning and that kind of physicality and durability. So you're pushing yourself at both ends of the candles in the fight and in training, and you're doing it consistently. And if you have a tough weight cut, that's just one more thing that's going to drain your body and possibly break it down. I'm not saying that he won't fight again, but I don't know that he can fight a featherweight. I mean, he's had all this trouble making featherweight. And then that's time he had trouble making lightweight. Maybe it's time for him to move up, or maybe it's time for him to take a long break, kind of let his body recover, and if it's possible recovering, and then see if you can get him back on track. Because with the kind of problems he's having and the style he has, he can't afford to be, he can't afford to be dehydrated. He can't afford to lose his durability. He can't afford to lose one ounce of that conditioning, because that's that's what separated him from Jose Aldo. It wasn't skill. He his durability allowed him to to eat Aldo's shots and put volume on him and make adjustments. If he didn't have that that activity and he didn't have that durability, Aldo would have had him out in the first two rounds. It's those, it's those two traits specifically that have allowed him to move up. Yeah, he's a smart fighter. Yeah, he's technical. But if he can't get through that storm and set that pace, he can't beat any of the guy, world-class guys he's beaten. Those are the two calling cards of his fighting style. Either one of those two things go, all of a sudden he goes from the best in the world to maybe a mid-tier fighter. And that's not being harsh. He'd still have the skills, but his skills are predicated on him being able to take whatever you can dish out and work at a higher pace than you can work at. You take either one of those things away, he is not the best in the world. I guarantee you. I'm not dissing his skills. I'm just telling you how he has how he has his style and strategy set up around those two attributes in his in his toolkit. So now we have a situation where Holloway is out, and we don't know when he's going to be able to return. Um, Dana White is being Dana White, and he was attacking. Brian Ortega for not taking a fight against Jeremy Stevens, which I find hilarious because the reason why Frankie Edgar's not in this fight is because he did Dana White a favor and took a fight against Brian Brian Ortega last minute and got himself knocked out. So how do you turn around and ask the man who basically leapfrog Edgar by knocking him out, how do you ask him to take a fight last minute against a guy like Jeremy Stevens who can sneeze on you and knock you unconscious? Like that. Was he going to ask him to take a pay cut, too? Was he going to give him the same pay he got for facing Max Holloway, or was he going to take a pay cut for facing a lesser, a lesser opponent? I mean, it, if, with it being a title fight and a co-main event, I'm not sure if he would have got the same thing, but... Because that's, that's what happened to Ferguson. When, when, when Khabib got injured, they wanted to go ahead with a fight, but they said, we're going to pay you less because it's not Khabib. I'm not uh, taking less for a dangerous fight. I mean, yeah, that, that's very true there. And, um... You just gotta wonder, like, what they're like. That's that's just pretty much uh, irresponsible. 
it would be irresponsible of him to take that fight and of his team to let him take that fight. Uh, and True, it is but, what it is. But if they go ahead with another interim fight and whoever wins that fight, they would leapfrog Ortega for the next title fight. Exactly. So, like, if he went in there and he got knocked out, that makes Jeremy Stevens the next the, the next number one contender, and we would never have gotten that Brian Ortega Max Holloway fight. And fight I know, but look at it from look at it from another look at it from another angle. Let's say they make Jeremy Stevens Franking Edgar four weeks from now. Whoever wins that fight is going to leapfrog Ortega, anyways. Well, we don't know because we've seen the UFC do other foolish things where they've taken an interim title, like they did that with um. Weren't they going to do that with the middleweight title for a minute where they have an interim... Actually, they did. They had an interim champion in Robert Whitaker. They had Michael Bisping, the actual champion. Instead of Bisping fighting fighting Whitaker, he fought GSP, lost the belt, and then the belt ended up getting vacated. Yeah, so they could have had a similar situation here. Yeah, true enough, but none of these guys are going to vacate. GSP didn't want to fight Whitaker. He would have had the, fir- had the first crack at him. Romero, you Brockhold would have been at the end of the line. I'm not saying that Ortega should have taken it. I think it's smart on him. I think it's smart on his camp. But you know when the you know the UFC is the king of petty. So if he refuses this fight, and Edgar or Jeremy or whoever fights for the interim title wins, Ortega will be number two on the list. Whoever wins that interim title fight will be number one, even if it's Edgar who just got knocked out by Ortega. I mean, very true there. So like, there's so many different questions. That we have to ask there. Um, Luke Thomas is bringing up some interesting commentary about the situation, and he's simply asking: Is MMA bro- like something in MMA is broken, where we have so many guys struggling to stay healthy, make weight, deal with USADA, deal with fighter pay, deal with no representation as um, employees, you know, or independent contractors, whatever you want to call them. And something in MMA needs to change. And to be honest, I think there's not like the, the only way people are going to sit down and say, okay, we need to recognize that something needs to change is when is, is, is if someone gets seriously, fatally injured in, in, in a cage somewhere and it's linked back to these issues with weight cutting and all these different conversations because we still don't know what these fighters are going to look like from a CTE standpoint. Hell, we got Chuck Liddell and Tito Ortiz fighting again when, I mean, we're going to be talking about that in a second, but we got those two guys fighting again and we know they've both taken a ton of shots over time. Diego Sanchez, he's still getting out there. So well, the, well, the, question be, the question becomes though, is it the promotion? Because I know the promotion has a fault, has fault in it, but if you're part of a fight camp and you have a management team, the, the promotion's responsibility is promotion. I expect Dana to say f Brian Ortega. His his response his responsibility is to the promotion. Like my responsibility is to my kids. I'm not going to put somebody else above them. Your team and your coaches and your training partners, their responsibility is to you. So if they know you're having a hard time making a weight cut, they can pull you from the fight. They can they can make you start cutting at a earlier time. They can keep you in shape year round. There's, if something tragic happens, I guarantee you, you can trace it partially back to what's happening in camp because the UFC is going to say, if you knew he couldn't make weight, why didn't you tell us two weeks ago? We could have scheduled him for a later fight. We could have put him somewhere else. 
you you let him go ahead and doing this knowing he was having weight cutting problems. You lied to us. We asked you, is the weight good? You said it's fine. Now a week out, he can't make weight. I mean, at some point, it's, it's not just going to fall on the UFC. It's going to fall on that camp. It's going to fall on those trainers. It's going to fall on that strength and conditioning. And it's going to fall on the fighter, especially if he's got a history of blowing up in between fights. UFC is going to be like, we paid these guys to be professional. What are we supposed to do? All we know is what the camp tells us. All we know is what the camp tells us. And there's been multiple examples of fighters hiding stuff until the night before where they have to pull them off the card because the UFC had no idea somebody was dehydrated, their kidneys shut down, they lost their sight, they were passing out backstage. The UFC didn't even know. Sometimes the UFC doesn't even know about this kind of stuff until it, ha- until it has to be known because camps don't want to lose money. They don't want to lose rankings, so they hide stuff. So even though we think it'll fall back on the UFC, I guarantee you it falls back on that camp first, falls back on that strength and conditioning per- per- person first. So there's a couple of different things you uh, said there because Dana White has shown the willingness to care for fighters, and I put that in air quotes. I mean, look at look at the way he got um, guys like Matt Ham, not Matt Hamill, Matt Hughes, Chuck Liddell, Randy Couture. Like he offered these guys long-term jobs within the UFC. He cares about the particular ones, and we've seen that in the past. Yes, it is his job to do to promote these fights and put the business first but there needs to be but consequences for such a situation directly impacts the business uh if someone gets serious like look at what happened when um who was the mma fighter who died in canada with uh hey uh, uh, hey in boxing tim hey tim hey yes yes he, he died in the boxing match but they've canceled any form of combat sports event in that area since that has gone down we don't know what will happen if something happens to someone within the united states and the ramifications of that that's a direct business impact that he needs to be concerned about but, let, but let's play the opposite side of that though if, if let's say the ufc goes out of business the fertitas are good dana white will be good he's made millions wme will be fine who's really going to get hurt the fighters the camps the strength and conditioning people who who are underpaid and depend on this money. All the big, all the higher ups, they'll find other jobs. You can find another job in administration and camera work and setting up and setting up rings and stages and cages. You can find all that kind of work. What are the fighters going to do? They're the ones who are going to be hit the worst. That's why I said. That's why I always say, stop doing these millionaires and billionaires favors and start looking out for yourself. Because if somebody dies, yeah, they, yeah, the MMA might be impacted. But I'm not worried about that. Those people in the higher ups are going to have jobs. I'm worried about the fighters who are now going to be unemployed because they have a sport they can't compete in. And I'm worried about that individual fighter and his family in that camp that's going to be affected by his death. I mean, we wouldn't be able to talk MMA, but somebody's camp, somebody's camp is going out of business. There's no need to have a camp if, if MMA goes back to the dark ages where they were getting 50,000 buys per pay-per-view. I mean, there's there's a lot of other people who would be hurt worse than the people who work for the UFC who will get severance packages and all this nonsense where they go about their business. There's no severance package for a mid card fighter or a prelim fighter. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, there's definitely a whole lot, lot to say there because they're, they're I, and I'm not disagreeing with you because a lot of people are, which are accountable for the well being of a fighter from start to finish. Um, a lot of people are. I just think that we need to really begin asking the questions like, what is going on within MMA that we're seeing this happen so often now? Like, guys are, we, we joke about the MMA gods, but in reality, something is going on within this sport where men and women are struggling to remain healthy, struggling to remain financially 
um, compensated and something is broken in it and that needs to be thoroughly addressed. I, I think it really comes all down to money. I hate to say it, but like in other sports, you know, like LeBron James, what did say? He puts in $2 million a year on his body. What MMA fighter can afford to do that? You know, and, and some of these, some of these camps, these management companies, they need you to take these fights. They need you to win these fights. That's why they'll let them take beatings longer. They'll have them doing these ridiculous weight cuts. They don't want them to pull them out of the fight because that fight hurts their management business. That fight hurts their camp's reputation. That fight hurts your coach's reputation. That fight hurts that fighter's reputation. And there's not enough money for them to miss out on any of it. I really believe money comes down to why these guys push ahead. You know, you guys, you hear stories about people passing out in the back. Why would you put that person into a title fight? If they can barely stand up, why are you having them fight the world's most dangerous striker? What, what sense does that make? Unless you really can't afford for your camp or your management company or your team to take the kind of hit that's going to come with the blowback of a person not making weight or being pulled from a fight. Why else would you risk their health? Unless it's that much of a life or death situation for you financially. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wouldn't, do, I wouldn't do that to you. If you, you couldn't make weight and you couldn't see, I'm like, dude, we're just pulling you from the fight. Nah, man, I'm a warrior. I don't give a damn. You can fire me afterwards. You ain't, yes, fighting, you ain't fighting today. Yeah, exactly. So, I guess the final thing I want to say about the situation here is um, if, you're in, if you're in Holloway's corner, you're on his fight camp, or you're on his team, what do you say to him? And what, do you, what, are, what are your thoughts around this? What do you I, personally, I personally think he needs to get really checked out. Like, go through, see a battery of tests, battery of doctors, because one, you have to think about his long term health and how this could affect him. Two, secondly, way down the list, way down the list, uh, number two, is how would this affect his fighting style? Does he have, is he going to have to change his whole style? Will he be able to perform the levels he wants to? I mean, that's always second. But after you realize that he's going to be healthy and you can kind of manage him and have a healthy life forward, if he can't fight, how is this going to impact his style? Because if, if he's really got these issues, like I said before, without that, without that activity, that conditioning, and that durability – He's not Max Holloway anymore. He is no longer the guy we knew him as, if you take those two things away. So he, he might not even be able to perform at the level that he needs to do the things to get ready to perform like he needs to perform against world-class opposition. But the first thing I'd have him do is take a bunch of tests, take a long break, and really see if his body's recovering and not under some kind of time limit, like, oh, we want to get him ready in the next six months. If it needs to be a year off, it needs to be a year off. If, it, if he didn't make enough money, he didn't make enough money. We're talking about how you're going to live the next 10, 20 years of your life. And you don't want to risk that to make a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand. That that's it's not worth the risk. Yeah, I definitely agree with you that there too. And I and I really wish him a speedy recovery. It was interesting, man. Did you see both Khabib Nurmagomedov and Conor McGregor like released a pretty clear statement like, hey, you know, get not even like no jokes, not, not taking any jabs at him. Just basically said, hey, get get healthy. And I think that that kind of makes me think of the serious nature of this when they weren't no jokes aside no laughing no giggling nothing like that hey get healthy well they, they respect the dude i mean the fact of the matter is he came in as a young prospect and he worked his way through the almost the entire featherweight division before he got the title he's been nothing but class and nothing but working hard and taking the biggest challenges on and for him not to compete you have to know something's wrong and i guarantee you conor mcgregor knows what it's like because he had the featherweight title, and he shouldn't have been at the featherweight division. He could barely make it. So I'm sure he understands the sacrifice you have to make and the possible health issues you could have when you try to make those kind of cuts. So, I mean, this isn't, this isn't just about fighting. This is a like, serious life-or-death sort of situation, and I think everybody who's a fighter understands 
understands that. And as a result, they're, 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 they're approaching it a lot differently than they usually do when a person doesn't make weight. Very true. Very true. And so let's move on to the next story today where we have um, T. Ortiz and uh, T. Ortiz and Chuck Liddell. Chuck Liddell. I can't even think of their name. Sorry. Tito Ortiz and Chuck Liddell are fighting for Golden Boy's upcoming MMA promotion. And, oh, boy. It's funny because they did that. I just saw on, on social media they did the impromptu stare down um, at the UFC 25 uh, on, on a red carpet for the UFC weekend at International Fight Week. And, man, it's just, oh, boy. This is stupid. I can't think of any other ter- any other term to use other than that this is flat out stupid because why? Like who who wants to see these two 40-year-old men get back in here and do it again? Chuck Liddell hasn't fought since let me see when the last time he fought was um let me see, let me see, let me see. You know, while you're researching this, you, you say that, but what was the rating for Gracie V. Shamrock on Bellator? What was the rating for Stefan Bonner? I know, Bonner, I, know I know, I know, I know. I'm not disagreeing with you, man. I'm not disagreeing with you from that standpoint. Like, they're going to make a shit ton of money. That's clear and understood. Um, but you I, know what, what I don't understand is, what, what I understand is, Remember when Dana White said it wasn't gonna, it was MMA wasn't going to be like boxing? They were going to pay their guys so that they didn't have to come back and fight in in their fifties. Yeah, he said that. Yeah. And here Chuck is. I'm like, I, I thought Chuck made all this money and he was a millionaire upon millionaire. I mean, unless he's terrible at his money, why does he have to fight? Like, is he broke? Is he is he having money issues? Like, I was under the impression that the Chuck really was at his peak was earning. And unless he's terrible at his money, there's no way he should be having to fight unless he just wants to. And and I, I don't understand if he wants to, why did he wait so long? I man, to be honest, I would not be surprised if if yes, you know, he, he probably everyone could 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 uh, get one last big payday and be okay. That's different. But, We're not talking about a Floyd Mayweather payday. We're not even yeah, talking about a Bernard Hopkins. We're talking payday. about an MMA payday. But he what what I've been seeing, I, I can't remember who was talking about it last week. I think it was Danny Segura on uh, the MMA beat last week was saying how watching Chuck Liddell at fight events, you can tell he still wants to get back in there. You can tell that he's anxious that he like he not anxious is the right word, but you can tell that he wants to get back in there in some shape or form. And I would not be surprised if that's part of the conversation as well too if he wants to get in and get back in there and, and you know kind of kind of like rocky did in in the, the movie before creed you know when he was talking about he rocky asked, Balboa. That, yeah. that, that's something that he wanted to get out we may be looking at a, a real life situation like that but um well can i ask you another question then now chuck hasn't fought in how in forever Tito's actually on Tito's on a winning streak against fairly good active competition. Now, I know him and Tito don't like each other, and he beat Tito twice before, but if Tito beats him up now, that's going to be the last thing in everybody's mind. I know he doesn't want to lose to Tito, and it's it's more than likely that he's going to lose to Tito. If you look at just 
who's been more active, who's fought the better competition, who's performed better in their last couple of fights against against better competition. I mean, is he really willing to risk that kind of humiliation? Because if Tito beats him, he's never going to hear the end of it. I mean, Tito has been he last fought at, in January of last year, where he defeated uh, Chael Sonnen, and he's four. Excuse me, he's three and one in his last four fights since coming back to. Bellator, um, his only fight, only loss coming to Liam McGeary, in a fight that he was doing okay in until he got uh, submitted. So, I mean, yeah, you know, if you look at, he's five years younger. He hasn't taken as much punishment. He definitely has not taken as as much punishment. He and he's been active. Uh, Chuck Liddell has not. I mean, he hasn't. And he has he hasn't been knocked years. out either. When's the last time Tito's been knocked out? Like knocked out? Like Chuck's been knocked out? Never in his career. He might have been stopped. He's never been knocked out like Chuck. Like, not smelling salts. Ten minutes later, doesn't know where he is knocked out. Yeah, I don't think he's ever been slept. Um, he's been pummeled. But he's never been slept. Um, Chuck Liddell's been getting slept. I mean, like, in a in a very bad way. I remember what Rich Franklin did to him. I mean, the Rashad Evans joint was just fucking stupid. Shogun Rua. Um, and Quentin. I don't remember Shogun. I don't remember that fight. I remember Quentin putting them in a coma too as well so like you have so many questions there man but we both know at the end of the day this fight is going to make a shit ton of money for um that organization i just i just hope they're getting money on the pay-per-view points i hope there's some kind of investment they're getting in it because you know especially in the end of chuck i mean i I just would i just have concerns i'm not saying he still can't fight i'm not saying he's not a savvy veteran but not have been in the cage for eight years. He's fighting a guy who's been active and fighting at least a decent level of competition, and he hasn't been fighting anybody. It just makes you wonder what's going on where he's in the situation. And, you know, I mean, I don't care what the tests tell you. The fact of the matter is there's a different sort of line of demarcation for a professional combat athlete and regular people. And, like I said, I haven't seen Chuck Spar. I haven't seen him hit that. I haven't seen anything. So I'm very curious which of the we see. He has left at that point. From my perspective, as far as competitive action fight, it just doesn't make much sense. And I, I'm still kind of curious as to why he's doing it. I'm hoping he's invested in the martial arts. Um, Once again, ask the question why is he invested in the UFC? You're breaking up, man. You're breaking up. He was one of the guys who helped build the UFC. Why doesn't he have stock in the UFC? Why is he not part of their promotion or or some kind of face of the, of the promotion or something? Why does he have to go to Golden Boy to get this kind of opportunity? It doesn't. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I agree with you. It just doesn't make sense. Let me ask you this: Are you going to watch? I can't imagine paying pay per view. I might see, catch a replay or something. I might see highlights. I just can't imagine buying that car, dude. I I, I just really can't. I, I'm I'm not gonna say I'm not curious, but. It just it just seems like a pointless fight for what? Like why are we doing this? Exactly, why are we doing this? And it's 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 like why are we doing this? And what I, oh jeez. And I know like if they were smart they would build a strong card or around this. I hope they do, because that's gonna be what what's get gets my attention. But man, I don't wanna see this. I don't wanna see these two guys. Uh, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. 
Yeah, I mean, like I said, I just hope they're getting some kind of investment. Maybe they're invested in the the organization, and they're going to be faces for the organization moving forward. That would be great. If they're just doing a one-off, it's going to help jumpstart the organization. I can I I can accept that, but I hope this isn't like a continuing thing as far as them being fighters. I hope it's just a platform to get the other fighters out and to get Golden Boy a stake in the mixed martial arts landscape. That's what I'm hoping. That'd be the best case scenario, and I like to think both guys are smart enough to do something like that. That that's the, that's the only hope I have. That's the only saving grace for this because clearly the UFC hasn't treated Ortiz or. Um, Liddell well enough, and I guess Bellator didn't treat Ortiz well enough either because he didn't take this fight to them in the first place. I think that they did try to do that first, but I'm not sure if that was... I, for some reason, I remember hearing Scott Coker talking about that, that this was something that they had mentioned originally, but we don't, we'll don't. we never know what happened there. I'm thinking I'm thinking they have some stakes in, in the Golden Boy MMA, and I'm thinking they might have wanted stakes in Bellator, and Bellator is like, no, nah, we're not giving you any interest or giving you any stock or any ownership and i think oscar de la hoya is willing to give them some ownership maybe as promoters in their own right under his mma organization like he's given other fighters their the ability to promote under his organization bernard hopkins shane mosley canel alvarez they've all had a chance to build their own promotions and build their own stables and maybe that's what they're going to let chuck and tito do moving forward that's the only thing i can think of that would make them go with him instead of a proven mma brand like bellator ufc Mm-hmm. But we'll see what happens, man. I think the business side of this, we'll probably hear about that at, at a later uh, date. Um, but God, Lord God, I don't want this in my life right now. Don't even want to think about it. But anyway, this weekend we have a packed weekend of fights. We have Fight Card tomorrow that I'll be working at Fight Metric. We have the tough finale, um, the, the tough season 27 finale. And we also have uh, UFC 226 on Saturday. So let's start with the tough finale here where we have Israel Adesanya against Brad Tavares in the main event. I wrote about this earlier today at MMARatings.net where you can go up there and check the piece out. Because I'm talking about the idea that Adesanya, I'm not going to say he's in over his head because Brad Tavares is someone that he can defeat. I mean, Brad is like uber tough. He's one of those guys. He's like a middleweight version of like, like a Darren Elkins or like a Nick Lentz. Somebody that you go in there and that you don't you won't be surprised if he pulls out an ugly win, but you're not going to look good in fighting him. Um, you're going to fight him and you're going to have to get ugly in, in fighting him. And the, my issue is if Adesanya wins, who do you throw him in there against next? You can't throw him to the Lions because I, Brad Tavares is ranked number eight in the rankings, but then at the same time, if Adesanya loses, how much does this take out of his momentum and how much does this take out of the sales that are kind of pushing him along rather rapidly in the UFC? Well, if Adesanya loses, I can't imagine a world where Brad Tavares actually outstrikes him and knocks him out. I can see a world where maybe he submits him, maybe, or he just out-wrestles him. And if he submits him or out-wrestles him, Adesanya doesn't really lose any shine because... Tavares has been in the UFC for almost, what, 10 years now? Eight, 10 years? He's won against pretty much every level of fighter except the very elite level. And most of the guys he's lost to were around, were closer to elite level talents than they were mid-tier. He lost to Robert Whitaker. So he's only lost to the better fighters in division. So Adesanya losing to Tavares doesn't take any shine off him as long as Tavares doesn't just give him the business on the feet and outstrike him and knock him out. That would be crushing. 
that was making him ha- have a setback. But people clearly see that Israel isn't a great offensive striker. He's defensively, he's good against the cage, but in open space, he can't defend anything. And there's kind of gaps in how he puts his game together. He can't transition from defending takedowns to strikes, from strikes into takedowns. He has no real guard game or escapes or reversals or submissions. So there's a lot of holes in his game. And a guy with Tavares' kind of range and depth should be able to take advantage of him and outclass him. So as long as he doesn't just knock Israel out or just wear him out on the feet, he shouldn't have any. It shouldn't really hurt Israel's standing as a as a fighter. For on the other side of what you're saying, if Israel wins, there's no real other easy matchups because Tavares is a ranked fighter. So once you go into him beating ranked fighters, now you have to start moving up the list. And there's so many guys with at least decent level wrestling credentials and high level grappling credentials who could take him down and submit him that it's going to be hard to protect him moving forward. This is pretty much the last really eat probably fights you can predict him winning in the middleweight division just based off the guy the, the, all the fights that he'd be facing moving forward. Jacare, David Branch, even Luke Rockhold, Romero, Whitaker, all those guys can take him down. All those guys can round him down. All those guys can submit him. I don't, I don't know who the easy fight would be. Maybe Chris Weidman? Even Chris Weidman with his chin can take him down and not grapple him. So once he gets past Tavares, how do you protect him? How do you continue to build him if he's not ready to move to the next level? Yeah, definitely check your um, connection real quick, quick too. But it's funny because I don't know if you saw him um, taking a shot at Yoel Romero the other day, and I'm like, dude, you don't want that heat right now. Like, you don't like no. Like, let's not do that because you don't want to fight Cuban Superman right now. Like, I'm sorry, but you don't. Um, maybe down the line, maybe in the future. Okay, yeah, sure, no problem. We can set that up then. Right now, I just don't think that that's a fight that he wants. But if he defeats Brad Tavares, man, their options are really limited. Maybe they do go with um, Chris Weidman, uh, you know, because he's trying to find a way back. I don't think that they go with Kelvin Gastelum because Gastelum should be the number one contender. Um, do they go with a David Branch, maybe, a Jacare, someone along those lines? Is, so is, Chris Camo- is Chris Camozzi still around? Man, Chris Camozzi's fighting in glory right now, but you know he would take any type of fight that he could get. Yeah, I mean, they, they'd have to bring somebody else in because, like, we talked about that. You mentioned this months before. I have to give you props on that. You were like, if he beats him, how do they hide him from that point on? You've beaten a ranked fighter. Now you got to move him up. It's, just, it's the same thing that happened with Paige Van Zandt. Once she started beating ranked people, it was like, okay, now we've got to move her to the next stage. She may not be ready, but we don't have a choice. We can't move her back- backwards. We have to move her up. She's she's on a four or five winning streak. How do we have her fight a, another person who's below the people she's been fighting? You have to move her up. And and I and I think Adesanya likes that. I think he wants to stay busy. I want, think he wants his name in the in the lights and the publications. But I don't know that it's given him enough time to develop the finer points of the game that he needs to survive against set veteran savvy guys who know how to get to the fight to the ground and who he's not going to get back up against. I don't know that he's getting the time off. He's fought like what twice in the last six months, six seven months. This will be a third fight in less than a year. That's mm-hmm. a pretty high activity rate. Very high, very high. So we'll see what happens because this, this this main event really has caught my attention because we don't know we don't know what's going to happen. We don't. And if Alessandro picks up a big win here. Granted, yes, he is a huge personality that the UFC wants to get behind. But if he picks up a, a win here, man, that's really going to catapult him into a stratosphere. And I don't think he's quite ready yet, ready for it yet. 
Well, they, they've set him up to win. They didn't give Tavares his fight for Tavares to win. Tavares has all the skills. Like, he can wrestle. He can grapple. But if you watch Tavares fight, he, he depends on his durability and his physicality a lot. And he's, he, he doesn't always fight smart. Like, how many fights have you seen where Tavares has taken the initiative with wrestling and out-wrestled somebody from beginning to end and mixed in some strikes and set him up to get the takedown and work a guy over? That doesn't happen. Usually he gets in exchanges, heavy exchanges, kickbox, slow-paced kickboxing matches. That's not going to get it against Adesanya. His defense is too good. His counters are too good. So unless Tavares does something drastically different than what we've seen him do, he's pretty much tailor-made for Adesanya to fight because of the way he fights. And if, if in fact, he applies more pressure and volume, we've never seen Brad Tavares do that effectively without getting hit a lot on the way in, which is also just setting himself up to be countered and pot-shotted by Adesanya anyway. So it's a lot more likely that Adesanya wins, and that's what the UFC wants. They made this fight to justify the hype between Adesanya because now he's fighting a ranked middleweight who's been successful over his eight to ten year career in the UFC. So this legitimizes him, which is great. But now it forces him to face higher level of competition, which we just stated he may not be ready for. All right, man. So let's see what else we have in the Coleman event. We have a pretty interesting women's fight here. Barb Honchak, uh, Honchak and uh, Roxanne Matafari. Now, I know that this is right up your alley here because we were going to get this fight at one point in time, but that didn't quite work out. Uh, what are your thoughts about this co-main event here? And, uh, and I know that this is kind of right up your wheelhouse because you've been talking about Barb and for a while now. So let's so let's see. Well, did, is this her UFC uh, debut finally? No, no, she lost to Murphy on the, two, on the previous tough finale. Okay, okay. So uh, talk to me about this fight here. My biggest concern, I feel bad for Barb Honchak because she's a good fighter. And at the time when she was at the top, she was considered one of the better athletes, one of the better, more well-rounded fighters. But in this current this current climate of mixed martial arts, she's not one of the better athletes. And she's not one of the more balanced, balanced mixed martial artists. She can do a little bit of everything, but her the ability to transition between things isn't spectacular. And her dominance in any one area isn't spectacular. There's better wrestlers than her at flyweight. There's better strikers than her to flyweight. There's better grapplers than her to flyweight. And before she had that gap in the skills and a superior athleticism where she could kind of get by when she didn't push it because she's not a super aggressive fighter. She kind of gets control, kind of controls you, works you over a little bit, does just enough to win, but not enough to really decisively win in dominating fashion. And she could get by when she was the better athlete, when she had the better skill set. That no longer exists. So I don't know how far she can really get in the in the flyweight division. I mean, Lauren Murphy's a tough matchup given how the volume and her durability, but as far as skills, she's not great. And Lauren Murphy was able to hold her own on the ground in wrestling exchanges and on the feet with Honchak. That's not a good, that's not, that's not a good sign. The one saving grace she has against Matafari is Matafari is not a very good athlete, but Matafari's a very busy fighter. She's a mentally tough fighter. She sets a high pace. She's probably the better grappler, I think, at this stage. And even though her striking is very predictable and, and she's not very a natural fluid striker, she does have her trigger set and her counters and her leads down to a to a T because she's not a good enough athlete to freestyle out there. So I really think that Modafferi's made the bigger adjustments and the most improvement. The only aspect that Honchak might have advantage is she's probably the harder hitter, even though she's not a knockout puncher, and she's probably physically stronger. But Montefiore has been facing better competition and been fighting more often. Prior to the tough, um, Honchak hadn't fought in like seven years. So I think she's just a little bit behind the times. I, I fully expect Montefiore to get the win back 
to avenge her loss and win by decision, if not by um, submission um, late in the fight. So for either woman, uh, talk to me about what this what a win would mean in the flyweight division as it's still developing. I mean, we just saw Alima Lay McFarlane get a big win in Bellator 201. And she also drew some strong ratings. I think the last number I saw was about 800K is what it peaked at when she was fighting. So talk to me about how important this fight is for both women in this weight class that's still kind of fleshing itself out. Well, for Honchak, it's very important. If she loses, that means she's 0-2 in the flyweight division. That 0-2 is not, even in the new division, that's not, that's not going to cut it. And she would have been 0-2 against the two worst athletes. And to a certain degree, and I don't mean an insult towards either fighter, especially not Mataferi, but two of the least natural strikers, least dynamic strikers in division. So you've lost to the worst athletes and probably the worst wrestlers in division. What does that mean for you going forward when you got to face people like Valentina and and Caitlin Chukagan and Alexis Davis and Liz Carmouche and, and people of that ilk, people who are much better athletes, who are who who've been much more proven as mixed martial arts wrestlers. If she doesn't win this fight, she tumbles all the way down the rankings, and there's a good chance that with another loss, she's out of the UFC because she's not a big enough name to justify keeping her in there just to get beat up by beat up by whoever else is coming up. If she wins the fight, it keeps her in title contention because a win over Mataferi is going to carry some weight because Mataferi was the last title challenger. If, if Mataferi wins, she's probably no more than a fight away from a title shot herself. I'd still say Mataferi and Sajar Eubanks would be ahead of Valentina Shevchenko for a title fight because they've actually beaten legitimate flyweights and Valentina beat a nobody. So I, w I would put them ahead of her for a title fight. Maybe they'd have Roxanne fight Sajar Eubanks in a rematch and that whoever wins that fight either challenges before Valentina or challenges right after her. But it, it's really important for both fighters because whoever loses is going to be 0-2 in the division. They're both highly ranked, but going 0-2 in the division, the way the fights are starting to be put together, it'll be too hard for them to make up the ground. And both of them are older. Neither one of them is a top-end athlete, and neither one of them has a lot of time. That's why Roxanne was so upset after that loss because she knows you don't get title shots all the time, and it's hard to get a title shot. If that was her closest easiest way to the title and she lost it so now it's going to be hard work and if she loses one more fight it's gonna be really hard work to get back to a title so neither one of them can really afford to lose this and whoever loses it is probably closer to their way out of the ufc than having a chance to be a legitimate title content so let me ask you this because i think um it came up while elimile was on um ariel's show yesterday or whatever day that was but is um is Alimale McFarlane the best flyweight fighter in the sport today um I I'd say she's I'd say she's one of them I don't know if she's quite the best she's no worse than number two maybe three if you stretch it I I mean Given the level of competition, I, I still say Mata Ferries would be more accomplished as an overall fighter than Emily Ducote and Alejandra Laura and the people she's beat on the way up. But given given how much she's improved, her physicality, her athleticism, and her top-end world-class grappling, it'd be hard not to say on paper that she's not the number one fighter in the division. I still believe Jessica I. Uh, I still think Nico Montano could give her, give her work. Jar Eubanks, Valentina. Kenko, 
I think those four girls would be even money to beat her. Given what I've seen from her, her level of experience and her athleticism, I think all four of those fighters can test her in, in different areas. But after that, I don't think there's going to be the UFC right now who I put above her. Interesting there. Interesting. So, what else stands out from this card before we move on to UFC 226? I'm just kind of wondering how long they're going to go on with this tough thing because Dana White Contender Series is pretty much a better version of tough. So I keep wondering how long they're going to keep going with this because it seems like the better talent is going to his Contender Series and they're just getting a lot of guys who aren't in the right right, rate classes nor have the right skill set and experience to compete at the UFC level right off the bat. That's the biggest thing I have to ask about this card moving forward. Um, Other than that, uh, the Montana De La Rosa fight... um, with a Rachel Ostevich is going to be a good fight. That That's a fight that's jockeying for position. I don't think whoever wins that fight is necessarily in the top 10, but I think they would, if a win would allow them to take the next step forward to being legitimate. Um, Ostevich has been too inconsistent in her career, and De La Rosa is still hasn't developed enough technically, especially in her transition or her stand-up. But whoever wins this fight will be taking a big step forward because that would be in a division just forming a two fight winning streak is it value that, that might get you into top seven top ten because nobody else is active in that whole fun enough to be to be higher than you need to have more experience with your better class fighter. So that's another important fight. You just kinda of went out uh, a little bit there too, but um as, as you were sitting there talking, it's funny, I just saw that um, to kind of switch the subject kind of quickly, that Jake Shields just got finished, man. He got finished in the um, second round of his fight against Ray Cooper tonight at PFL wow. 3. TKO. Wow. I mean, as we as I always say, you know, he's 39 years old. Father Tom is undefeated. And yeah, he, he got everything out of his skill set he could. I mean, it might be the end of an era because he's He's been one of the better mixed martial artists in, in the history of the sport, to be quite honest. If you look at his resume and who he's beaten and who he's fought. Dude, he mounted Damian Maya three times. No one talks about that. Everyone I'll, talks I'll about Maya's um, jiu-jitsu. He beat, me, he beat Damian Maya. Did he beat, he beat Tyron Woolley too? He beat Tyron Woolley right before that. He beat um, Martin Katman, Dan Henderson. Carlos Condit too at some point. Carlos Condit and Yushin Okami in the same night. He beat Dan Robbie Lawler. He beat Paul Daly. He beat Dan Mike, Henderson Mike, too. Mike Powell. Yeah, I said Dan Henderson. Yeah. Um, who else did he beat? He beat. Um, it's funny. He's beaten Ray Cooper before too, and he lost. He beat his dad too <laughs> today. He beat Ray. He, he wait, beat his dad too. Really? Yeah, he Ray Cooper's dad went one and one against Jake Shields, and he beat. Ray Cooper's son twice before. This is the first time he's lost to him. So wait a minute. Is so is so is Ray? Oh, so Ray Cooper is a junior. Oh, Ray Cooper. Yeah, the I third. think it's Ray Cooper the third. You're right. Yeah. You're right. He did go one on one against. This is this is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I, I, whenever whenever that I'm like, you know, you've been fighting too long when you fought a dude twice and fought his son twice already, man. You need to you really you need to start looking at some other avenues, man. That's that's a long time to be fighting. That's crazy as hell. So. Anyway, um, let's go on. Let's move on to UFC 226, man, where we have some pretty important fights here: Stipe versus Daniel Cormier. Break it down for me. Uh, I have a really hard time 
uh, with Co- thinking Cormier could win this. I'm a, I'm a Daniel Cormier fan as far as his desire to be great and, and his push and his grind and what kind of guy he is. But this is just a really bad matchup for him. Daniel Cormier isn't the athlete he used to be even two years ago. In every single fight, his last six fights have been back-and-forth wars. Against Johnson, he got beat up really bad before he finished him. Broken nose, knocked halfway across the cage. Against Gustafsson, that was a five-round war. Against Odemir, Ozemir, that was a two-round war. You know, he just hasn't had any easy fights, and he's been getting a lot of punishment built up on him. I don't know that his durability is there. I know his athleticism isn't what it used to be. And while he's probably a little bit quicker and a better athlete and a better wrestler than Stipe, I don't know how he brings those things to bear given the style of fight he uses now. Like now he tries to pressure people. He doesn't show any good footwork. He can't work his way into range. He bull rushes. He eats all sorts of shots coming in on the hoping that he's going to get his hands on you. Then he can either beat you up in the clinch or take you down. And I could see him getting to the clinch on Stipe, but Stipe is going to have like 40, 50 pounds on him. And Stipe is a very strong guy. Stipe hits very hard. I don't know that Daniel can handle his power. I don't know that Daniel can stay in extended exchanges, striking, or in the clinch with him. It's different clinching with a guy who's got 40, 50 pounds on you. And I don't know that Daniel can take him down and control him for the better part of a round like he is against these other light heavyweights who he can physically dominate. A lot of what Daniel's been doing recently has been he's a better class of fighter. He's a world-class fighter, and he's been fighting guys who are like a tier or two below him. Stipe Miocic is a world-class fighter. He's not going to outclass Stipe. Stipe is not the most technical guy. He's not a great defensive grappler. He's not a submission guy. But he's got a very established approach, and he's mastered it. He knows how to keep distance with his jab, throw the right hand, chop you out of distance with his kicks, and if you get in on the inside of him, you've got to get through his hands to get into a clinch with him. And that's a very hard thing to do, even for a top-end wrestler like Daniel Cormier. I really don't think Daniel has the durability or athleticism to win this fight. I know he doesn't have the striking acumen. It's pretty much going to come down to whether he can generate some kind of huge amount of power or he can outlast Stipe and late in the fight, turn it on and get a quick submission or quick reversal and get him down and submit him quickly. I just don't think he has it in him at this stage. I think he's taking too much punishment. I think he's been through too many wars. I think he's lost a step physically and he's fighting a bigger, younger, fresher, confident champion. Um, I fully expect, in the best case scenario, Stipe wins a decision and beats him up a lot. Worst case scenario, he stops him inside of three rounds. What I see that's very interesting about this is that a lot of people are talking about Cormier being undefeated as a heavyweight, which is true. 13-0. But a lot of those matches... If you look at the fights, he's throwing around guys like Josh Barnett and throwing around like um, Bigfoot Silva and other guys. But in reality, he's never faced a heavyweight that can actually wrestle. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying that. <laughs> excuse me. I'm not saying that Stipe is a Olympic level wrestler, but he's a bigger man who can wrestle. That's going to cause some problems there for Cormier to begin with. And I think that that's going to be, that's a narrative that people are kind of not paying attention to because yes, Cormier is the better wrestler. And I hate to use the term on paper. He's a better wrestler, period. But he's never fought a heavyweight that can wrestle with, that can MMA wrestle with him. And that is what Stipe can do. And that's what I expect him to do and do it pretty handily uh, throughout this fight. Well, and also as a wrestler, you know, you can't just, 
shoot in blind. You have to work yourself into range. Stipe's got a lot of range. You got to cover a lot of distance to get to Stipe's body for even to even attempt a shot. And unlike most heavyweights like Roy Nelson, Frank Mir, who were not very good athletes, Stipe was a college athlete. He's a real life functional athlete, and much different than Barnett or Mir or Nelson. Stipe can box. He can box off. He can box pressuring you. He can box lateral movement. He can fight off the back foot. What that means is if I'm exiting on angles and I'm circling out, it's harder for you to get into range. So if you commit to getting the range and you reach or you overextend, I hit you with that check hook. I hit you with that jab right hand. I slide off or I hit you with that jab right hand and I exit on an angle. And if I rocked you, I could take you down or I could just overwhelm you with strikes. Daniel's never had to worry about really working himself into a guy's range with really good footwork. Gustafsson doesn't count. His footwork is terrible. But even in fights like that, where he fights guys who could move and guys who had range, he had a lot of problems with them. Remember what he, John Jones was, isn't a good rap wrestler as Cormier. What did Cormier say? The distance, the length, the physical strength threw him off. If John Jones is throwing you off with his length and physical strength and his power, what's Stephen Miocci is going to do? Because Daniel Cormier hasn't gotten better. He's out gridded, out tough, and outclassed these guys. His striking has gotten worse. And his wrestling is his saving grace. But that's only because he's a better athlete than these guys, and he's a better class of fighter. Those two advantages do not exist against Stipe. So you've got to explain to me how he's going to get through his hands and how he's going to do it repeatedly without taking tons of punishment and without burning tons of energy trying to take a man 60 pounds heavier than you down who knows how to wrestle and can get back up. And nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody wants to talk about how his takedowns were stuffed by Ozanamir. Nobody wants to talk about how he was taken down by Gustafsson and Jones. And he had a hard time taking down Frank Mir. Frank Mir was up against the cage the whole fight. He, he, didn't, he didn't take Frank Mir that, that many times. When he took Josh Barnett down, he took him down, but he didn't keep him down. He kept taking him down, but he could not keep him down. And Barnett's not as good an athlete as Stipe, nor is he as good a striker. So when you pose these questions to people at Cormier, Cormier's corner, all they say is he's undefeated at heavyweight. He, he was fighting a different kind of heavyweight back then. Different these kind guys, of heavyweight. Yeah, these guys can't beat Stipe. And I don't know that I, – I don't believe that Daniel can. If he pulls it off, it'll be a great upset for him. It'll be great for his career. It'll be damaging to Stipe's career. Stipe can't afford to lose this fight. Stipe needs to win this fight. A loss to Cormier is awful for his career and his legacy. So he has more on the line than DC. DC gets knocked out. Nobody, he loses nothing. Stipe loses a decision, gets knocked out, gets choked out. It's over. He takes a huge hit as far as being an all-time great heavyweight. A huge hit. So, But I, I really believe that Stipe wins this by decision. At worst, at best, he knocks him out inside of 30. I mean, yeah, I think it's a pretty big fight there, too, because I, I, I agree with you. It's huge for both men's legacy in a win and loss type of way. If Stipe wins, do we see him and Brock Lesnar fight sometime this year? I mean... It'd be the biggest fight Brock could get. I don't know. I don't think it's the best fight for Brock. I don't really think it's a good fight for him. But as far as making money and being able to sell an angle on it, yeah, I think he fully he takes he takes he takes the challenge. I think Brock Brock is a bigger, stronger at this stage, still a better athlete than Cormier. He's not the fighter that Cormier is, but I, I think in spots he can make it interesting. I don't think he has the depth of skills to win, but given his his charisma and his image. It'd be a big money fight, and Stipe needs people who can sell fights. I know everybody likes Stipe because he's a down-to-earth, straightforward guy, but the fact of the matter is all these guys he hates on for getting more publicity than him, they're the reason he makes money because Stipe can't sell on his own. He, he wins in dynamic fashion, but he's not particularly charismatic. He doesn't say catchy things. So the only way he makes money and, and expands his brand and builds his legacy is if he's facing guys 
who have a legacy and a name and a charisma about them to help him earn money and help him get those opportunities to be on ESPN and Fox Sports and commercials. He needs those kind of guys. And Francis Ngannou did him a favor. All the promotion he got did Stipe a huge favor. Because part of that, nobody really cared about Stipe. And nobody did at the fight either. But once he beat Ngannou, people started caring. So he needs these kind of fights. Yeah, I'm not disagreeing with you on that point there. Um, let's move on to the card here because there's some other stuff I want to talk about that's going down. You mentioned Francis Ngannou. He has a big heavyweight fight as well against Derek Lewis. This is a grudge match that has some hilarity behind it as well, too, where you have two big men who gas out and knock out. So what do you see happening here, man? Are these two guys going to get dead tired within the first two minutes and then we're going to have a hug fest for the rest of the fight or is someone going to sleep? I, I think someone's going to sleep. I mean, it really could go a boring fight. The The thing about it is I know people giving Ganu a lot of crap. They're like, well, he was exposed by Stipe. He got tired, blah, 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 all that nonsense. But he went. He didn't get knocked out by Stipe. He went five hard rounds with Stipe. And when he was gassed and Stipe was beating him up, he didn't quit. He didn't tap out. He kept fighting. He kept taking a beating. He kept getting back up. And he's a, he, he doesn't have any grappling skills, but he still worked his way up. He landed some good shots. He was doing some good things in the fight. As far as consistency and his ability to work through being tired, he's better than he's better than Derek Lewis. I personally think he's faster. He's more explosive. He's more agile. He's a better actual striker. And in my opinion, he hits harder than Derek Lewis. I've never been hit by either one of them. Just going by what I see, he's a faster, more explosive shot puncher and striker. He hits harder than Derek Lewis. Derek Lewis is a guy who is pretty much the most vulnerable heavyweight fighter in the history of heavyweight fighters because he doesn't have a defined skill. If I ask you're a grappler, does Derek, West, does Derek Lewis look like a wrestler or a grappler to you? Have you seen anything from him that says that he's, a, he's even a decent wrestler or grappler? Has it, does he have a submission win? Does Derek Lewis have a submission win on his record? I don't know, but I've seen him out positioned and taken down and repeatedly controlled by almost every fighter who's tried to take him down. I haven't seen a guy. I, Roy Nelson had, was controlling him. I wait, thought that wait, there was oh, a. Oh, okay. I, I thought you were about to say. I thought you were about to say. Roy Nelson has bad grappling. I was about to fight you. Oh no 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 no! That was my point though. Roy Nelson's outclassed him. They had the Russian guy who was, um, uh, Tibura. Um, I forgot the name. Marcy Marcin Tibura, the heavyweight. He was taking him down and styling on him on the ground. So Lewis isn't a grappler. Not defensive or offensive. He's not a wrestler, not defensive or offensive. He's not really even a good striker. He really throws big kicks and big punches. He waits till you, you hang long too, too long in the pocket or you get so comfortable attacking him, and then he lands a big, huge counter, essentially turns the fight around, and then finishes you with strikes. He's never fought a hard three rounds before. He's never shown a lot of defensive acumen or ability to counter or ability to wrestle or ability to grapple. I'm not saying he hasn't gotten better because he's shown some improvements, but his improvements have been more strategic than technical. And if you look at this pure technique and who's faced a better opposition, I say Ngannou's faced a better opposition. He's looked better against the better opposition. He's looked better against the more experienced opposition. And he didn't lose until he fought the champion and he lost a five round decision. And he could have easily turned that fight around in the first two rounds if a couple shots land differently. I think Ngannou's a better and a better version of Lewis. And I fully expect him to win this fight. I mean, if Lewis wins this fight, he's going to have to show me something he hasn't shown me before. And over his entire tenure in the UFC, Lewis is all, all his fights have followed a familiar pattern where he's being outclassed, outworked, beaten up. He lands a big shot. He gets in the right position because somebody can't overpower him. And then the whole fight turns. Against Travis Brown, he was losing until he won. 
Against Tiberia, he was losing until he won. Against the Russian, he was losing until he won. Multiple fights, it's the same trend. The only difference is I don't think Nganu, I think Nganu's got a good enough chin. I think he's got a good enough athleticism. I think he's got enough power and conditioning to consistently finish the fight. The only question is, does Lewis break something out new? Wrestling, grappling. But by that same argument, maybe Nganu decides he's going to play it smart. He's going to attack Lewis to the body, and he's going to take him down. Because Lewis has nothing for anybody off his bat. I, I just feel like Nganu's a better athlete. He's more proven in my eyes, and he's a more destructive hitter. So I have to weigh in on the favor of the guy who's proven more of himself. He only lost to the very best guy in the division, and unlike Vernum and Overeem, he didn't get knocked out. He toughed it out and made it all five rounds when he was dead tired. I've never seen Lewis show that kind of professionalism or grit when dead tired. When he's tired, he doesn't have any more. He's just taking big wide swings, hoping to turn the fight around. Ngannou was trying to win from point A to point Z the entire fight, no matter how badly he was tired, no matter how badly he was outclassed. And I think that's going to be the difference. It's an entertaining fight. It'll be entertaining in spots, but it won't be entertaining for the duration because neither one of the are the kind of guys who go out there to lead. They're both aggressive counterpunchers. It's just Ngannou's more structured and more dynamic in his counterpuncher and more, more accurate in his counterpunching than Lewis is. So I just looked up Derek Lewis's record, and he has one submission victory in armbar back in like 2000 or something, like early, like early, early, early in in his career. So yes, yes, there was one way back in the day. I would love to find video of that armbar there. Um, I hope that guy retired. So Derek Lewis admitted you. I don't know if you should be fighting in MMA. Exactly. You should just call it a quits there. Um, That's like getting out wrestled by Holly Holm. Maybe you should think about how another line of work. Well, well, she's getting better. She, she's she's working at it. <laughs> you can explain any way you want, dude. I saw Jerrain Duranda me stuff all her takedowns, and Megan Anderson, a supposedly challenger for Cyborg, got taken down and controlled. Not just taken down, taken down and controlled and worked over. <laughs> like, oh my god. Just just thank the Lord, Cyborg didn't get her hands on you. Just thank the Lord, because she would not be alive right now, and Cyborg would be in jail for what she did to that girl. Anyway, I'm not even going to entertain that commentary there, sir. Um, let's move on down the card here because we got a couple other guys I want to talk about. Mike Chiesa and Anthony Pettis. I'm really interested in this fight because I think Chiesa has Pettis' number. And I think this is an opportunity for him to take one step closer to earning a earning that, earning that at least that number one contenders fight. I don't think he's ever going to challenge for the belt. But I do think he can defeat Anthony Pettis in what is a key fight for his career right right now. Yeah, this. I mean, to be honest, I like you say he's he's an action fighter. He's gritty. He's great in transitions. He forces exchanges. He's tough. He's he's he chases takedowns. He's great in controlling and really forcing a pace and imposing his will on guys. But he hasn't beaten a lot of world class guys to be honest. For one, so I don't know how much this fight affects the rankings. I think the fight really comes down to if he can push Anthony Pettis back. When Anthony is pushed back, he's just not good off the back foot. He's not good at exiting on ankles. He's not good at he's not good at circling. He gets stuck on the cage. He gets defensive where he's just throwing one or two shots, and you can overwhelm him with volume, clinches, and takedown attempts. That's what RDA did. That's what Eddie Alvarez did. That's what everybody who's not a striker has done to him. The only thing that stops Kaseya from doing this is if Anthony decides – He's not going to allow Kiseya to take charge of the fight. And that means every time Mike Michael takes attempts to take down, you punish him. 
get to punish him for a takedown. Every time he throws a probing strike, a probing kick, you have to fire right back at him. Basically what RDA did to Benson Henderson. He throws anything, whether it lands or not, you have to make him pay for it. You have to make him pay for even thinking about asserting himself offensively in a fight with you. And the main thing he's got to do is attack the legs and attack the body. Kaseya is not very good to the body. Most of the fighters in Rick Little's camps aren't. He needs to punish him to the body. He throws, if Kaseya throws that right hand, drop levels, get that right, get punch to the body, get the leg kicks, get the leg kicks, kick to the body. He needs to punish him there. And he needs to punch with him and return fire off every single attempt. I don't think Kaseya can handle Pettis' power. And I don't think Kaseya is any good off the back foot or if he's stuck up against the cage. So what Anthony needs to do is make sure that Michael doesn't build any momentum. You have to cut that off from the minute. Because once you give him momentum, he'll start rolling. He'll start rolling. He'll get takedowns and start working you over. He'll exhaust you and he'll finish you. He needs to cut off all that in the beginning. Same way Kevin Lee did. Same way that anybody who's beaten Michael Say has done. You've got to cut him off early. And Pettis is not known for that. He's known for waiting around for the big shot, waiting around for the highlight reel strike. But the blueprint for success is very easy. It's right in front of him. And I still think he has enough to do it. I put Kaseya on a level similar to a Dan Miller. He's just not quite as sappy, and he's not as durable as Dan Miller is. Pettis beat him, so if Pettis just puts forward a focused, consistent effort and really attacks that body, I think he wins it. If he lets Kaseya get momentum going, Kaseya's just going to wear him out and beat him. And Anthony can't afford a loss at this stage. I, I think Anthony Pettis pulls this one out. He might submit him if he's lucky, but I'm thinking he just outclasses him and outworks him Interesting, man. You think that I'm going to go with Kessa on this just because I think that Pettis is shopping more, for lack of a better term. Um, yeah, he, he is. But he, I mean, I think his last two opponents, I mean, I think Poirier is better than Kevin Lee. Kevin Lee's a better athlete. I thought that Pettis actually performed well against Poirier and had a chance to beat him. I think I think Pettis is, I think Pettis' biggest issue, he, he, he refused to take a step back. He kept trying to face top-end guys instead of making adjustments to his game. So I really believe he's been making slight adjustments. And if you face a guy of a caliber that he has some room for error, you'll start seeing those slight adjustments. You'll see those improvements, and you'll see him take those steps forward. But against a Poirier, against a Barboza, against a uh, Eddie Alvarez, those kind of guys, RDA, you don't have a margin there. They're too good of athletes. They're too physical. They're too gifted and too experienced. He is good. He's gritty. He's not a super athlete. He's not super durable. Even though he's good on the ground, he's not a dynamic finisher. You can go on the ground and stay and not get finished. He's dangerous to finish you, but it's not a guaranteed finisher. Breaking up, son. And I think that's what he's not. is not a guaranteed finisher. He can finish, but he's not a guaranteed finisher. I think I think Pettis has room to win to win the fight. But if he loses, he needs to think about retiring. Because Kasey is the kind of guy he would never lose to, even in, in his stages where he was declining. So this is a very important fight for Anthony Pettis. He loses this fight. It's, it's, it's big problems for him. If Kaseya loses, I don't think it's as big a thing. Because I think a lot of people still believe in Anthony Pettis. Very true. Um, let's see, let's see, let's see, let's see. Let's see a couple other guys I want to talk about, too. Because we have Mike Perry and Paul Felder. This last-minute fight was made once. Uh, Mike James Vick was moved up to face uh, Justin Gaethje, which left Paul Felder without a fight. Then Yancey Medeiros got hurt which allowed for Felder to slide in, in the place here. And we have an, an, an intriguing fight here because 
You have Felder who's trying to find his way into the UFC top 15 and get some bigger fights in the organization. He keeps getting the the raw end of the deal when people get injured. This is twice how I think that has screwed him in some type of, or some some shape or form. And he's taking a welterweight fight against Mike Perry, a guy who many expected to take some time off to kind of get better at his craft, but instead he's been playing around with some genealogy uh, games, and we're not even going to get to go too deep in that. But this asinine, fool stuff, foolish stuff he's been doing lately. But we have a welterweight fight here with between Perry and Felder, and I'm looking at this as I think this is a this is this is a pretty big fight because I think just from an action standpoint, it doesn't have much to give from the ranking questions around it because I don't I don't think that Felder has any intention of staying at. 170, and even though he's a taller fighter, I think he doubt, I doubt he has any intentions of staying at welterweight. So, talk to me about this fight here, Sean. This is something that should be looked at as simply just a fun fight that should deliver on action for uh, UFC 226. Before I can look at it as fun, I have to think, and I've talked about this about Mike Perry since since he broke onto the scene as a major fighter. Every fight he's been in has been in, in some form or fashion a, a version of a war where he's taken huge amounts of punishment, whether he's won or he's lost. He's taken big shots. He's had to come back. He's had to dish out huge shots. His style, his style is kind of his style is the kind of style that's gonna get you hit, and you have to show durability. You have to show heart. I was really hoping he would take some time off where he get some easier matchmaking because when you face easier matchmaking, you can try out some defensive things. You can try out some slick counters. You can try out your wrestling and grappling a little bit because you have a bigger margin for error. When you're facing a guy who could knock you out or a guy who's top shelf, you have you go with what you know because trying something else might get you beat and you can't afford any mistakes against a top end guy. So I was hoping that he'd get a little more time for his craft, get a little bit of time time off where he's not tough fight after tough fight after tough fight. Clearly, the UFC had different options, and they're putting him in a fight with Medeiros would have been tough. Against Felder, it's just as difficult a challenge because Felder it, it doesn't have the work rate of Medeiros, but he's a much better technician. He's a much better – he's a much more varied striker too. He's got spinning attacks. He's got knees. He's got low kicks, head kicks, body kicks. His hands aren't great, but his hands have improved. He's got a pretty crisp jab. He's putting his shots together a little bit better. He exits and enters on angles a little bit more. The one issue Paul Felder has, which is a big problem against a guy who, even though he's un- he's not as skilled, is a much bigger hitter and, in my opinion, a much better athlete and durable fighter against Pe- in Perry, is Felder is a fighter at heart. Regardless of whether he's a martial artist or not, he's a fighter at heart. He likes to hang around the pocket. He likes to put a hurting on you. He likes to put his shots together. And anytime you're throwing volume and you're putting shots together, that's the most vulnerable you are to being countered and having your head taken off. And against a guy with Perry, who's knocked out durable welterweight, you have to assume that if he puts one or two shots on Felder, Felder's not going to be able to stand up to it. And that's a big risk for Felder because when you take shots from certain kind of guys, it can change the career, your career arc. You can go from a fighter who's moving up to a fighter who takes a brutal knockout, or even if you don't get knocked out, you take so much punishment that you have the world-class talent beaten out of you. And Felder hasn't had a chance to make big paydays. He hasn't had a chance to headline any real events and be a big star. He's just in the formative stages of his career as a lightweight and a UFC fighter. A fight with Perry is very dangerous because of the damage he could accrue, just like a fight for Perry is dangerous because he's accrued so much damage and he's facing another physical, ton- punishing, technical fighter. So there's a lot on the line for both guys. 
Um, I tend to lead towards Perry because I feel like Perry's looked a little shopworn before and he looks a little ex exhausted, but he's got such an advantage physically. And Felder is such a kind of guy who, if you clip him, he's going to sit in that pocket and exchange with you. He's not the kind to run and, and cut angles and jab away and peck away at you. He could do that and beat Perry easily. I don't think he's going to do that. I think he's going out there to get in a fight. I think he's going out there to put on a show. I think he's going out there to teach Perry a lesson. And that's the kind of per fight Perry needs him to fight for Perry to have a chance of winning. Perry doesn't have the skills of the class to box with him or be technical. But if Felder wants to fight and Felder wants to punish him, if Felder wants to put on the show and put a stamp on the win, that's all Perry needs. That, if that's what Felder wants to do, that's all the chance Perry needs to win. I think the size and the durability and the explosiveness is going to be the difference in the fight. And I, I fully expect Perry to win that I don't know who I was listening talk about this because they say that that is an issue with um, fuck I just forgot the, with Paul Felder that he comes into fight sometimes with the game plan the action starts and then the game plan goes out the window so yeah. you can see when, when he can outclass a guy he's, he's, he's like a guy who can stay poised when he's got an advantage in athleticism and physicality when he can dictate he can stay poised but let him be beating up on you. He's landing all sorts of shots. You land one good left hook to the body, one right hook to the head. You land a big shot, and you talk to him a little bit. Okay, now you cross the line. Now you challenge his manhood. He ain't letting that happen. He'll he'll take getting beat up and knocked out before he gets punked or he looks bad, looks like he's taking a backward step. And you know Perry's gonna be talking to him in there. You know Perry's gonna to be engaging him and trying to get get him into that kind of fight. And Felder, in his heart, wants that kind of fight. That's what he's looking for. And that's, that's what's going to get him in trouble, in my opinion. I apologize for cutting you off. No, 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 no. You're definitely good there because that's kind of um, what I was going to say is it'll be interesting to see if they if he starts off on a, you know, with a pretty good solid game plan, then, like, things get ugly. And next thing you know, we're, we're watching good old Felder. Uh, the, 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 the Felder that doesn't need to be making an appearance come out. Like, I think of the tale of two fights. You know, um, look at how he fought Charles Oliveira um, in a way that he needed to in order to get a, a big win. Look at that. And then you have the way he fought Edson Barbosa in a fight he could have won. Or Ross he, Pearson. Or Ross Pearson, correct, had he changed things up a bit. But uh, you're, you're totally right. He really does that. He does that in a way which causes issues to himself time and time again. Yep, and he's facing a guy who... Even if Perry's slow to step, I haven't seen Felder be a dynamic finisher. He landed lots of clean shots on Pearson. He didn't put him away. He landed shots on Barboza. And Barboza is historically a chinny guy. He didn't drop him. He didn't put him away. Even when he knocks out Oliveira, Oliveira's kind of fragile. Perry's not fragile. So he's going to have to put a lot of heat on Perry to put him away. And the more he, heat he puts on him, the more opportunities he's going to give Perry to get his, his pound of flesh back. And I don't, if I'm going to go to, by skills, easy Felder. He can outclass them. He can pick them apart. But if I'm going to go by who can handle each other's power the most and who can exchange and stay in the pocket and really win that fight, if Felder wins it, I'll be greatly impressed. But I, because I, I have to think that, Felder, that Perry's got a little bit more in that, in that kind of fight. That's the kind of fight he wants. That's the kind of fight he always pushes for. And he's facing a guy who, even though he's technically superior to him, wants that fight too, deep down in his heart. So it's not going to take much for Felder to get into a firefight. It won't take much at all, in my opinion. Yeah, it definitely doesn't take uh, much for him to uh, get into a firefight. I definitely agree with you on that. 
let's talk about Rafael Sunstein and Rob Font. This is another fight that I didn't even realize was on the card. It kind of snuck in there uh, when I was looking at the uh, at the docket today. What are your thoughts about this fight there, man? And who does Sunstein have to kill in order to get a title shot? Sunstein would have to win 14 fights in a row all by knockout, and then he might be put in the top five. Maybe. Like, dude cannot, he cannot get a break. Like, he's literally going to have to, he's going to have to run in and submit Stipe and double leg Daniel Cormier in the main event his, in his order to get a, a, a uh, his shot. Style, his style is too boring. That, I mean, he's, he's technically, he's got a good master of distance. He's got that long kind of karate stance. He kind of bounces in and plays with distance, manipulates it to limit guys' offensive attacks, to land counters, to kind of bait guys into throwing certain shots so he can line up certain counters. But the fact of the matter is he doesn't work at, at a really high rate against the best guys in the world. He doesn't land a lot of fight-altering punches. And he's one of those guys who, the longer you see his style, the more effective you become against it. If you watch enough of his fights early on, he's hard to touch. He's landing all sorts of shots. Guys can't corner him. They can't get a timing. They can't get his rhythm. And later in the fights, when guys just kind of let their hands go and put some pressure on them, you start seeing them figure it out. You start seeing them pick it up on them. And I think he's getting older, and he doesn't have the stamina necessary to just get by on any athleticism or activity. So a lot of his posturing and a lot of his striking is to control the pace, to slow the pace down, to force you to limit the weapons you have and force you to kind of limit the attacks you can have. Because if you can't really get to him with a jab or you can't get in position to land a strike, you can't really get in position to get a clean takedown attempt. If you can't get a clean takedown attempt, he can stuff it, he can sprawl it, he can exit on an angle, reset, force you to waste that energy, get back up, and spend all that time chasing him, trying to cut the cage off. And when you finally do it, because of his stance and his angles, you take another bad shot, you can't get him down, he escapes, he either tries to submit you himself, takes you down off of it, or he escapes, it forces you to repeat the process. It's all about controlling pace, disrupting his opponent's rhythm, and limiting their offensive output. I think Font has a technique to get to him, but I still think... Asuncio's kind of his rhythm and his pacing and his stance, I think it's going to throw Font off, and Font's going to need time to figure that out. And I don't think three rounds is enough. I don't know that Font has the athleticism or the all-round game to force Asuncio out of of the pace and out of his comfort zone. And if you can't force him out of his comfort zone early, your chances of winning the fight aren't very good to me. I I fully believe that Font could counter him. I believe Font could jump on him early and and get a big knockout. But Asuncio does have good reactive takedowns. He's good on the ground, so you don't want to give him any options there. And he's confusing enough on the feet to make most guys have to work their way into a rhythm and work their way into, into heating up and putting shots together. And in the time you're working your way into the fight, he's already banked one or two rounds away. Um, Asuncio is slipping. I don't think he's the athlete he used to be. I don't think he's quite as durable as he used to be. But I think he should have enough as far as in his bag of tricks to get by Rob Font. I don't think Font's quite seasoned enough against a tricky fighter. Against aggressive fighters, yeah. Against athletic fighters, yeah. But against a guy who's going to pick his spot and force you, to, force you to work every moment in the cage, like not work landing strikes and work taking strikes, work getting in position to land a strike, where you can land one strike, but you can't land two. Now you got to work to land two strikes instead of three. That kind of thing is very mentally exhausting and physically exhausting. So I think... The little tricks he has and his ability to control pace is what's going to win him the fight. Juan will have a chance midway through the fight and late in the fight, but I, I really think that um, essentially Asuncio is going to get a lead and sit on it and pull a, pull a decision win out. He might might get a KO. 
because he's very good at baiting guys and landing those big counters. But he's usually not good at knocking out the more durable, higher class, more athletic kind of guys. Usually against guys he outclasses, he can do that. And I don't know that he quite outclasses Rob Font in any area except for experience. Okay, okay. And is there anything else from this card that stands out for you? Uh, I just wonder about, uh, what's his name? I saw him trip in that video. Like, he's not going to pull out of the fight, too, is he? Yeah. Man, everybody was like, oh, my God, what the hell happened? Because he looked like he was really hurt when he helped him up. Yeah. yeah, I I, I mean, he really might be hurt, but he might be thinking, I can't afford to cut out of this fight. I mean, if they lose the, if they lose the main event, what is it, Ngannou versus Lewis? Uh, the pay-per-view guys are going to take a big hit off that one. Yeah, man, people are going to lose their shit. But, um... Yeah, I saw that video clip and I was like, "Oh my God, what happened? I don't want anything to do with this." If I was, if I was you see, once the second fight fell out, I'd be having these guys in glass cases, have them wheeled up, speak, put the microphone in there, have them on a crane, carried away, nothing can touch them, nothing can get near them. Just you, you speak from your locker room. Don't even come out here. Just talk from your locker room. Go back to your hotel. That's it. Don't leave your hotel. Stay in your room till it's time for you to fight. I take it no chances. Like they legit need to be carried to the cage uh, by the ring crew because there's no way on earth we can like keep letting these guys potentially risk them risk themselves in the uh, fight. Oh yeah, Dana White don't care about that. He do, he wants this pay per view to go up. This was supposed to be his crowning jewel of the year, and already he was set back. So he can't he can't really afford he can't afford anything else. He can't afford anything else to go wrong. This went from being the most stacked card of the year to. Just another stacked card. And if they lose the heavy, the main event for some reason, then all bets are off. All I, bets saw, are off on I saw a very interesting question online today about when do people purchase fights? Do they purchase it the day the fight is announced on pay-per-view? Do they purchase it like a week out from the event? Do they purchase it after the weigh-ins? Or do they purchase it the day of? And some people were saying that they actually do not purchase the fight until during the pre- preliminaries. Dude, like if you're a mixed martial player. arts fan, you can't afford to pur- you can't afford to purchase the fight until the preliminaries because you don't know what you're going to get. No idea. Like that's the whole if thing. You, you have no idea. Yeah. Pulled out. Aldo's pulled out. Max has pulled out. Daniel Cormier's pulled out of a bunch of fights in the past year or two. I can't take any chance. Man. I'm not paying until like it's right before 30 seconds. Joe Rogan selling the show and then I know who's going to be in the car and then I will push by. I'm not doing it one second before because I don't know what I, – I expect to see Khabib versus Ferguson. I get Khabib versus Aya Quinta. I, I didn't want to pay for Khabib versus Aya Quinta. Why, why am I paying for this? I mean, I think it's a great question. I would love to see some data around it as, as to when do people actually purchase their fights. Yeah, I'd like to see that too. But all I'm telling you is if you're a mixed martial arts fan, you don't buy it a day before. You don't do nothing. You wait until – 30 seconds before, then you push by. I ain't buying in advance. I'm not planning a party or nothing. I'm waiting until 30 seconds till I know. I don't disagree with you there, man, at all. So um, let everybody know what you're working on this week and where they can find your content. Uh, the most recent article I did, I just did one for MMA ratings. Uh, it was on Derek Lewis talking about why he is not an, a, a, he's, he's not an elite fighter in the truest sense of the world. It kind of just breaks down his, his previous fights, his performances, and how that affects my impression of him as an elite fighter. Because I think he might be an elite talent based on his resume, who he's won and who he's won against and who he's lost against. I don't think he's an elite fighter. I think he's 
more of a charismatic guy who's got an exciting style that that a promotion would get behind. But I don't know that his as far as his actual performance skills, I don't think he's the lead. So that's all I have. I'm an article on Combat Press over field, kind of breaking her down and previewing her fight with Nita Hammer, whatever that happened. Uh, that's all I've been doing. That's all. That's all I've done this week. It's been kind of a light week for me as far as fighting. True, true, true. Um, I am working on something on a couple of pieces that you know, as usual, just got a couple of interviews in the can that I need to kind of get together and and finalize and get them out there. But as always, man, you can always find my content at rgarcia underscore sports, where I'm rambling about everything and anything that's going on in the world today. Schwan, where are you on Twitter? Uh, Black Jordan Breen and said you can hit me up anytime. I talk boxing, mixed martial arts, basketball. Seems I talk about that now too. So I can talk about it all. I have verified experts who say that I know each of those sports better than the average um, fan and probably better than some people who are involved in the sport. So I can hit you on any one of those topics. But, But I specialize in mixed martial arts. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Um, let's see. As always, you can go to MMARatings.net and rate the fights with two fight cards. So we have PFL just in today. Then we have two other fight cards this weekend. Go to the site, rate the fights, let everybody know what you thought. Rate them one through nine stars, kind of like Dave Meltzer and his pro wrestling uh, ratings. And you can also find pieces by myself, Schwan. Adam um, Adam Martin does pieces as well. Michael Ford sometimes does some content for us too. And feel free to rate them as well. We'd like to know what your feedback is and how, how you're taking and what you like to read about and what fighters you like to read about. Definitely. A lot of um, people have come through and written for the site since moving on to other opportunities. So, yeah, definitely take the time to check us out. And with that in mind, my man, I'm going to go ahead and say good night, everybody. It is now Friday, so please find a way to enjoy your weekend. Yep, you guys take it easy and enjoy the fight this weekend. No problem. Have a good one, man. You too.